Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. In this episode, we're talking to a founder who's disrupting the way we think about work and interact with our surroundings. His name is Freddie Ford. He's the founder of Patch, a work near home, flexible working concept currently based in Chelmsford. Now, I emphasize the word currently as he and his team have grand ambitions for expansion. Now, flexible working is a fascinating topic and is often oversimplified by the effects of the pandemic. To me, it's a meeting point between technology enabling flexible work, demography, property prices, gender pay gaps, and infrastructure spending. And all these trends were well established even before COVID. Now, Freddie was a brilliant guest and he has an interesting way of thinking about the workforce as this underutilized asset on the balance sheet of the country perhaps a result of his background as a consultant at Bain. Now, it was an enjoyable conversation. We covered more of his background, including his time at Entrepreneur First, his vision for shared work and life spaces, standing on the shoulders of giants of his competition, the rejuvenation of old Debenham stores and the challenges of growing a company like his. He's built an interesting and scalable business franchise. And if you have any questions for him, and do get in touch at whyinvestatwaverton.co.uk. But without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Freddie Ford, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. Doing really well. Thanks, Doug. Great to be on it. I'm excited about this. Freddie, how did you start your career? Somewhat normative. I started out doing something that your parents tell you should do, which is management consulting. Didn't love it, but learned an enormous amount and, and was fortunate to work in a wonderful place, Spain and company, where the culture is just hard, hardcore on the work front, but extremely supportive of individuals. And I was lucky to meet lots of great mentors there. So what then drew you to the world of entrepreneurship? And we're going to talk about Patch in a second, but was there a sort of a bone in your body, or maybe a backbone in your body that yearns to do something entrepreneurial? Yeah, I go back to before I was working, I went to university, I studied history and uh, ended up in the Students' Union as a, a student president. The reason I mention that is I really did very little work at university and did an awful lot of events and societies and, and all sorts of kind of planning and bringing people together. I really enjoyed the sort of tangible activity of creating something from nothing and just from your imagination. And that was kind of what I spent my time doing. So at the Students' Union, we were a political group, societies and activities, but also uh, the largest bar in town. So I got quite kind of uh, a lot of exposure to what it was like to bring people together and do things. But I guess the other sort of passion that I had, other than people and, and, and sort of kinetic energy and real world tangible things, um, was technology. And uh, I had a very good friend at university who inspired me to think about things like Twitter and Bitcoin um, way before they were common parlance. And it was him who really got me thinking about software. And I sort of at some point realized that actually, if you can imagine it, you can more or less build it in the sort of digital sense. And I think over time, I've started to appreciate more and more just how much of the world around us is changing through technology, which I know is a very broad sweeping statement. But a lot of the time we see things that happen and we think, oh, well, that's just a change in consumer trends. And perhaps we'll talk about this when we come to patch. But actually, the underlying driver is the fact that things can be done in a digital way and you know, about people and places and buildings. The biggest driver of change, I'd say, post-coronavirus and the effect on where people collaborate is you no longer need to be in the same building. It's a sort of very 19th century approach to things. And actually, we're all sitting at home on our laptops or whatever. I think Uber is probably another obvious one. It sort of 
feels and looks like a taxi platform, but actually, you know, the technology in our pockets means that that kind of world is enabled and, you know, we can get into cryptocurrency and the metaverse and so on. And so all of this kind of high-minded excitement around the sort of unlimited opportunity of what technology could create always wants to push me towards startups. Mm-hmm. I want to pause, actually, and we're going to come on to Pat, but I want to pause on an area of your CV, which I think is interesting, which was when you worked at Entrepreneur First. Can you just describe what Entrepreneur First is and, and what were you doing there? Yeah, so Entrepreneur First have effectively created a new asset class, <laughs> which is kind of pre all of the traditional rounds of investment capital. So if you sort of think about, in my brain at least, the sort of later stage capital is effectively IPO and public investing. And then you can go back through the various alphabet rounds in private investment. Uh, you get to sort of early stage, you know, series B, series A, series, you know, seed funding. And as I see it, um, Entrepreneur First have created this new category, which exists before the company does. I think they call it talent investing. And the idea is, they back high potential entrepreneurs before those people know that they're entrepreneurs. I'm going to hackney the phrase, but I think their strapline is something like, or one of their phrases is entrepreneurs are everywhere. And, you know, the best entrepreneurs are, are out there. They just don't know it yet or they haven't been found. And what they do is invest in both bringing those people together. So high potential founders from less obvious places, almost like atoms, putting them into a room. And then the second thing they do is, is actually pay them a stipend. And they say, look, we know that your time is valuable. We know it's hard for you to kind of do this. And not everyone has the resources just to sort of, you know, wander around for three months. So we'll actually pay you a stipend, teach a whole load of things about entrepreneurship and shake you up. And then, you know, out of that kind of can of atoms come a whole load of molecules. And these are really very high potential people with, you know, incredible backgrounds, repeat founders, people who wrote the book on machine learning. I mean, literally kind of, world-class engineers. It's not only a student in a, in a hoodie, technique version of, of startup founders. Presumably there's an alumni network or there's a sort of network that you can tap into after doing something like that. There is, and, and it's the only network I've ever been close to that um, competes or possibly even exceeds my Bain network within the more traditional corporate environments. Having worked at a well-respected firm tends to be the thing that people hang on to. And I think you meet obviously incredible people there many of whom I still work with and learn from today. But in the Entrepreneur First Network, I really lost all my inhibitions about my own personal biases, basically, around meeting people who were totally different to me. And, and frankly, they would have thought I was quite weird at university, and I probably thought they were quite weird. And, and actually, you start to come across people who are just from a different world, but they know what crypto is four or five years ago. I mean, some of the companies that were being built back then in kind of biotech and machine learning and so on were way, way, way ahead of their time because the the group of people that come together on that are so exceptionally talented and variant. And the founder of Entrepreneur First has written about creating uh, variance amplifying institutions. That is, some traditional employers might come across as variance dampening institutions. So you're sort of always regressing to the mean because that's what your bosses want. That's what the industry wants. And everyone's trying to do away with any kind of risk. But what he has written about, I think, with relation to EF is creating variance amplifying institutions. You know, that is places which deliberately encourage variant ways of thinking, many of which are probably wrong, but ultimately the net effect of all of these different ideas firing off in lots of different areas is more likely to create something that is genuinely new and exciting and doesn't look at the world in the same way as everyone else. I see. It sounded like a very important part of your career. But let's move on to Patch and let's introduce Patch, which you founded in the late stages of 2020. So very much sort of after lockdown or after the first lockdown in the UK, probably maybe just before the second lockdown. 
let's introduce Patch. What problem were you trying to solve? Sure. So I guess the short answer is a place to go on the high street. So we believe we're creating this new category called work near home services. So that's both a physical place where you can do really high quality productive work in an inspiring environment around other people. So you're not kind of cooped up at home. And we believe that's a long-term secular trend inspired by technology. But I think actually there's a strong case there to be made for co-working in in residential areas. So this is not in London. Uh, well, our first site is in Chelmsford. We could be in Woking, Chester, you know, Wigan, and so on. So that's kind of the, the sort of co-working and commuter towns bit of the business. But actually what we're doing and when we think about working at home is much, much bigger than that, which is the constellation of activities and ideas that is enabled by the fact that people are spending more time near to where they live. And if we can center economic opportunity and specifically high quality, you know, talented people who are curious and interesting no matter where they live into a building. And we are looking at literally former Debenhamses, if you think about the kind of retail side of it you know, and, and what's happened on our high streets, then actually we believe this work near home world is, is an incredibly exciting opportunity to redefine what high streets are for. And it is anchored by that economic opportunity. Our sort of longer mission statement is to create opportunity for people, their work and communities on every UK high street. So I said I'd give you a short answer, but I've started to go into pitch mode, so I'll, I'll pause it there. That was almost the elevator pitch. I mean, it was a long elevator, but it was, an, it was, the, it was the elevator pitch nonetheless. But how do you think about the competitive environment? Because are you late to the party on this? You've clearly had some sort of high-profile competitors through the WeWork, for example. Where do you think you sit next to the competition? Are you competing on price? Are you competing on technology? Are you competing on a sort of different category? We're very clear that we're competing on product, but I also think that your point about category is, is very important. So we are not a co-working business. And I, I know I use the co-working phrase and it, you'll see it in our website, but that is a sort of lookalike. We're standing on the shoulders of people like we were. Flexible serviced office as a sector is well understood. And as I said, the case for co-working environment serviced office in commuter towns is not a revolutionary one. What we're building is fundamentally different, which is the second part of what I was talking about with the work near home world. Yes, it's a place to do work, but actually, as I said, it's an environment. It's a place for people to go on the evenings, on the weekends. It's a center of community. It's something like the modern day town hall, library and Debenhams all rolled into one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know if these towns that we're going to have capacity to absorb six, seven hundred desks worth of flexible working. I think they actually probably do. But that's what you could fit into an old Debenhams. Mm. What I'm much more interested in is if you center 20 or 30 percent of that building around desks and you relocate or rehouse commuters all around the country. And let's just take you know London, for example, two, three days a week. You can believe whatever percentage you want about people spending two, three days a week, let's say, near where they live versus in London. But whatever percentage point you want to pick around the sort of global population, and there are at least 2 million people who commute into London on a daily basis in that knowledge work world, you don't have to shift footfall very much to create a very compelling new center of activity, which is your local high street. So as people start to spend more time near where they live, all of the ancillary things that also become true are now looking for a home on the high street. Now, that's everything from gyms to antenatal classes to crochet to I mentioned crochet because we have a very active crochet group in our first site. Last, yeah, someone's mentioned crochet on this podcast. I'm so pleased. Yes, exactly. Bingo. But also, it's actually a centre of community. So, what do we keep hearing? We hear this sort of death of the high street narrative. We hear that people want to work near where they live. 
But we're also hearing is the idea that, you know, we sort of lost touch with our neighbors. And, and I think fundamentally, I've come back to the reason I started this company. My passions are in people and technology. And, you know, as I said, technology has the effect of denuding our high streets from what they have been used for, for so long. But also, I think it has the ability to bring people back together. And if you have people, as I said, who are centering their day-to-day -day working lives in a building on their high street, the second and third order impacts of that, I think, are the thing that gets really, really interesting. So what does the user interface look like? What does you walk into a, your site in Chelmsford? What does the user see? Well, I think the most important thing is that you can see it at all. We're on the high street. We're in a former restaurant. Prior to that, it was a brewery. And we get a lot of people walking past who want to pop their head in. And, and the whole point is the front door is open. This is not a serviced office. This does not have a security guard at the front door. There is not whitewashed walls and drop ceilings. When you walk into Patch, what you see is bright, colorful furniture, a public event space. Perhaps there's um, a speaker event taking place in one of our ground floor event spaces. And then next door, you've got the Women in Business Networking event, or you've got the Chelmsford Fringe Festival. You see a hive of community activity. You see people up and down the street who maybe have never interacted before coming together into this building, into this semi-public space to take part together in whatever activities or hobbies that they share. It could be a bicycle repair workshop, you know, or it could be the a kind of creative meetup. You know, we're running a talk on what it's like to build startups and entrepreneurship in Chelmsford next month. Then as you progress through the building, as you go upstairs, that's when you start to see the work environment. And now they are very high quality work environments. There's a mixture of flexible desks. There are private offices. There's meeting rooms. Really well designed. I should mention our head of product, Paloma, who, who has the most extraordinary background in design and actually co-founded a social impact design studio that indeed won the Turner Prize for their work building community and civic spaces in Liverpool. And so I thought about this for a long time before I started Patch. There were many different products that you could combine. So co-working plus what? And you might question why this kind of mixed public use space on the ground floor. And there's sort of two reasons for that. One is a sort of quite basic but important sweat the asset. You know, you can use it in evenings and weekends in the way that you cannot use offices. But I think the much more important part of that is about community association and brand. We want to establish ourselves at the center of the emotional role of the high street as a place that people can come. That is a great way to build word of mouth. That is a great way to build loyalty with our customer base. And frankly, it's what I feel like, and, and certainly it seems to be the case with our initial traction, I think is what we want on our high street. It's a place where it has that sort of anchor habit of people coming and going for work. And as I said, that economic opportunity acts as a sort of gravitational pull around which that constellation of, of different activities can revolve. It must be quite challenging to develop a coherent marketing strategy, mm. given that you're so sort of multifaceted. Your users are obviously the people who actually go in, but also your marketer, it's a B2B business in the sense that you're trying to get companies to move. You're probably facing off to some fairly stern counsellors. I wonder how you approach your marketing and how much of it is persuasive and how much of it is sort of educational? Because really, frankly, it is a bit of a category killer. You are kind of trying to move people's imagination away from where they are. I think, you know, your use of the word category there, I think, is instructive. I think you see it in property as well. People think we're used to thinking in terms of class A, class B, class C, office, restaurant, etc. I don't think in terms of my life <laughs> as, you know, I'm doing a class A activity this morning and this afternoon I'll be doing a class B activity and, you know, Doug, let's go and do a class whatever. Work and life. Like they could be misconstrued, those activities, but yeah. 
Right. So work and life, they don't just sort of have these neat boxes that, that we pack them into. We as individual consumers who go about our lives, you and I who are sitting in the office doing our work, that is a consumer experience we have. I understand that it may be the, the employer that's paying, although actually in our first site, a lot of the flexible memberships are actually being paid for out mm -hmm. of people's own pockets. But work doesn't just start at 9 a.m. and life just stops and you know, vice versa at 5 p.m. I don't think we live in that world anymore because we are always on and our work is in our pocket and on our laptops and you know goes with us wherever we are. I think it is no longer the case to think about B2B and B2C. I think the big shift, and there's an author called Draw Poleg who's written very cleverly about this, we are seeing the shift of office into a consumer brand. Now that started with WeWork, but I think particularly for the work near home world, it's absolutely the case where people are spending two to three days working at Patch and two to three days commuting into a city. If, if at all, they may spend five days at Patch. They as the individuals are making that decision. And I think one of the biggest silver linings out of the COVID crisis is going to be a rehoming of power and authority and control away from the employer and towards the employee. Because Doug, if your employer say we're not to allow you to work remotely for X days a week, because actually that's who you are, you live where you live, you want to spend time with your family, you have access to the outdoors, you know, etc. The reason that people, not everyone lives in London, because of these variety of quality of life reasons, and your employer says that they're not willing to allow you to do that, and you have to come back mm -hmm. five days a week, you know, the emperor has no clothes on this anymore. They cannot reasonably stand up and say, it is not possible for you to mm -hmm. do your job remotely. To which you could say, do you remember 2020 and 2021, when actually it was possible and most people did. And so the next employer, who I'm sure will be delighted to have your services, will say, don't worry, Doug, we'll let you work remotely because we understand that your family is important mm -hmm. to you, et cetera, et cetera. And actually, you can do your job remotely. So I'm looking forward to the day where, well, I think that day has arrived now, where finally, after years and years and years of evidence that shows that people's most valuable request from their employers has been flexibility much more than increased pay or holiday or bonuses or company perks. Look at any index, any credible report going back years, it's always been flexible working because our lives and our work don't neatly fit in these boxes. Unless, by the way, you're of a sort of certain normative type, right? I don't have kids. You know, I'm a bloke who lives in London. It's quite easy for me to work that sort of nine to five. You know, but that's just not the case for everyone. And in the same way, you know, as we talked earlier about entrepreneur first, their kind of thesis is that the world is missing out on its best entrepreneurs. I think that the UK, and we'll start with the UK, but let's say the UK is missing out on its greatest talent because so many people are denied the access to opportunity to do good work and to network with fantastic people. Because by the way, as we build a network of patches around the country, we can actually build an unbundled version of London, a much bigger and more powerful network, if you will, that floats between 100 different locations around the country. Lots covered there, but this is what I'm excited about for the power of people post-COVID. I rather like that idea that you're basically using a sort of fixed asset on a balance sheet, which is at the moment being completely underutilized, you know, the fixed asset being workers spread around the country who aren't able to work or haven't been able to work. Speak to any working parent and speak to any working mother. I mean, that actually the original way back, the original concept, people ask me why I'm doing this. You know, I, I, I grew up in a single parent household. I'm not a parent myself, but, you know, I've seen firsthand, as, as so many of us have, right, the, the challenges that, um, in my case, single, and it is usually single moms, have to go through in order to make everything meet. You know, and I remember when I was at Bain and I was speaking to an executive assistant on our floor and, and she said she was going to offer to have her first baby. Congratulations, really excited. Do you, do you know if you'll come back? She said, I can't afford to come back to work, even though I want to. Any working 
parent, any mother listening to this will rather roll their eyes and say, well, well done for figuring that one out. But at the time I did, it wasn't obvious when I was 21, 22, again, very normative in my kind of background, right? So why would I even think about this? And then actually you just realize that, hold on a second, you know, so I should finish. So, so the original idea was to create kind of nursery and co-working in one location to, to kind of help solve that problem. It doesn't work for a number of reasons. But actually I realized that the much, much bigger question is not just that group of working parents, but people who have caring responsibilities, people who have access requirements, people who frankly just don't want to or cannot live near London, people who have never had access to the opportunities on their doorstep that come with that, et cetera, et cetera. And if you believe, as I do, that talent is normally distributed, but actually opportunity obviously is not, and we're stupidly pricing ourselves out of, pricing people out of the chance to have that opportunity by, you know, making it so expensive by obviously density of places like London, then, you know, there's an enormous opportunity for all of these people who are excluded from traditional workforce. And guess what? They can do their job just as well remotely, if not all the time, at least some of the time. And, you know, this is really what Patch is excited about. We've discussed before the growth that you're experiencing. We're going to need funding for that growth. And I want to turn to the sort of fundraising aspect of your business. And the first question is, what doors have you have you been knocking on uh, so far? So the adage goes, you know, it starts with friends, families and fools. Then you move to investor angels, then something more institutional like venture capital. Have you been knocking on all doors or have you been focusing on, on one particular subset? So I've always felt that you are what you eat. And if you are very strict with yourself about your fundraising process, it will force you to be a better company. So I didn't really go to any friends or family for the first fundraise. My mum very generously offered me an amount to get started. And I said, mum, thank you. And I love you. But that's not a reflection on whether this is a good business. That's just a reflection on the fact that you like me. And that's, that's not you love me. That's great. So I started out by, I kind of went overboard, you know, went sort of full bane on, uh, on creating the the most intense data room, which nobody read, which I'm now actually going to, to reuse because we're, we're just about to start raising some more capital at the moment. But actually what I did was build a, a mixture of tech angels, so people I know from that world, and those are people who really understand that the opportunity to capture work near home is enormous and therefore having any share of it is great. So they're happy to invest money and, and go and let me build a business. And then also a mixture also of people with property backgrounds. So short answer, individuals who understand the vision and who actually we were quite selective about making sure that these people can actually add tangible direct value to the business. So we said no to quite a few people. We could have raised more, but I wanted to make sure that everyone was able to support the vision and contribute to the company in some way. So that's interesting, Freddie, you said that no one accessed your data room. So data room being a set of files that and information. Well, maybe maybe 1% did. Maybe 1% did. Because I've heard this before, actually. You know, you can track how many people access these things. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there was no... Diligence. <laughs> yeah, diligence. I mean... And... Or do you, like deep diligence, yeah. Hard diligence. Yeah. Are they sort of happier to meet you looking in the whites of the eyes? Well, I think doing the work improved the quality of the conversation. And so I was probably able to talk credibly about unit economics, which is something I'm absolutely passionate about, believe me. So am I. Yes, exactly. You know, in a level of detail, because I'd done the work, and you can't fake that, if you serve to me. I also think that credibility comes from a lot of places. And I think, you know, I probably exaggerate. I think people did look at it, whether they went through every sheet and every detail, I'm not sure. Yeah, the credibility came from probably the, the quality it pushed through the conversation, but also through the network. So a lot of my investors came via referrals through other people someone would invest, they would then refer their friend and so on. And I wouldn't have said this at the time, but certainly, you know, as I'm now looking towards uh, larger checks, so we're probably raising somewhere between two to three million. And it's pretty flexible how we approach that. 
you know, I'm, I'm revisiting that diligence again to make sure that, you know, I, I think that that level of interest will will step up. And I wouldn't have said it at the time, but I do think that angels are obviously very diligent, but I think they understand that plans change. There's so little certainty at such an early stage when it was just a presentation. I don't think interrogating it to the nth degree is the point. I think the point is, do they believe that the founder is capable of figuring it out? Do they have the passion and the determination? And are they right about the opportunity in a big market? And if they're right about all of those things and version one of the business plan stands up under conversational purposes, then I don't think interrogating the diligence much beyond that kind of carries it that much additional weight. And it must be a sort of full-time job unto itself trying to raise capital for a business that's growing. I wonder how you manage your time between running around and checking out old Debenhams and um, actually raising capital. How do you manage that balancing act? It's a cliche and, you know, I'm, I suppose, relatively young. I'm not a titan of industry. You know, I, I can't carry the, the authority, as I've heard other people say, this, but it really is, it is about team. It's about investing in great people who you trust and who are capable and who don't need you hanging around all the time. And actually, my challenge is more about finding the right bite point between being involved and engaged and close to the customer and close to the team and close to the product, but also allowing the team to develop their own visions for those things. So that's the primary tactic, I suppose, is to make sure you really invest in your people properly. I think a lot of it is about prioritization. So referencing your earlier question, you know, I certainly know lots of founders who start, you know, go spray super wide and they'll just go and speak to anyone. But I think very carefully about who's worth speaking to and why. And, you know, we're developing a very clear investment thesis for ourselves and we'll target people who meet that investment thesis. And I think filtering out conversations that are interesting but are never going to go anywhere is an important part of it. And a lot of that, again, comes down to mentorship networks. There are people on your podcast who I look up to and, and who have helped me directly. And I think being smart about the filtering process early on in your funnel is probably the most important feature of that, I would say. And so assuming a, a successful raise this time around, I think you mentioned sort of circa two million. Sure. How would you look to allocate those funds? And you talked earlier about product being central to the proposition. Does that therefore mean that you're going to have to invest in you know, bricks and mortar tech over marketing? Sure. So the reason I mentioned products is this is second nature and first nature, basically, in, in the world I come from. You know, In the tech startup world, which is very much my home, you build things that people love. I mean, that's the, that is the catchphrase, build something that users love. And in the true sense, that agile approach of constantly adapting and changing and listening to your customer fundamentally is why I think we will uh, succeed. So I don't think any, well, I know that nobody else is, is thinking about working at home in the way that we are. It's conceivable that other people will start to look at what we're doing and take an interest for sure. But I think it's the operational depth and credibility of our focus on listening to the customer, constantly innovating on the product and constantly being ahead. Amazon, Jeff Bezos would be a great example of the kind of person that does as well in technology is fundamentally what sets us apart. So in terms of allocating the capital, that same mindset goes with our investor base. You know, there's a world where we could raise just a, a sm much smaller amount. And we've got some incredible pipeline sites, which I unfortunately can't talk about, but former telephone exchanges and post offices and, and massive kind of, I think it's a church on the go. I mean, it's all these really interesting places, Debenhams I've mentioned that carry emotional credibility, but we could actually just do a small raise, a small amount to get one of those sites going, uh, or we could do a much larger amount and do three or four. But our capital strategy is very clear. We don't want to involve our equity in the bricks and mortar of the building or, or the fit outs for, for any longer than we have to. I recognize that it's a necessary step on the way to proving our operational credibility. But the sooner that we can focus on building out the central team around, to your question, product 
and operations, which I would say is part of product. And increasingly around network and community is kind of where I want to grow the business. And I think the opportunity for Patch to exist online as much as it does offline, for me, is where the kind of next kind of growth, the sort of Amazon Web Services, if you see what I mean, the next kind of growth uh, machine for us comes so that we can become the network of networks of talent all around the country. So you've got someone who comes to a Code First Girls free class in our site in Chelmsford, might learn to become a developer, might get mentored by someone in Chester who might then pass them on to an employer in Norwich. Then maybe this Code First Girls person becomes a sort of associate member of ours, doesn't come into the building all that much, but retains a subscription in order to access the network of services and network of people. And that world where you don't actually need a patch on your high street is the place I'd like us to get to and I'd like us to start investing. And just staying on fundraising, and this is almost a boring finance question, but it's not meant to be. No finance question is boring, Doug. <laughs> I wonder if you've explored debt financing, because to me, the sort of essence of your business is subscription and sort of long duration cash flows. Could they then be matched with long duration debt? Absolutely. And we've got a couple of provide. I mean, it's early stages, right? We've been running our first site for only a few months and we're pretty close to break even. So I'm very confident about our economics long term. But today is probably too early. I think six months from now. Yeah, for sure. And anyway, I mentioned getting our equity out of the capex as soon as possible. Yeah. Debt is the obvious journey there. you know. And then there are kind of all sorts of other more creative models around the real estate as well, which would change the nature of our business model. But I think there's huge opportunity for us to add value both as you say, using debt at the operating level, but also potentially um, in the kind of underlying real estate as well, which is a totally different type of capital. But um, yeah, there's, there's lots of options. Yeah, interesting. And as we look to the future, you know, I think you've painted quite a clear picture of what the business may look like you know, in, in the next six months, 12 months. I wonder if you go further, what does your business look like in three years' time and four years' time? And what do you predict the industry looks like? How much of that capacity is used, both real estate and human resource capacity? Difficult question, perhaps. It is inconceivable that we will go back to where we were before. When I was talking to investors about this just over a year ago for our first round, it still seems somewhat contrarian to suggest that the likes of HSBC, Deloitte, KPMG, et cetera, et cetera, and all the law firms now are doing it. You know, I've seen Canary Wharf have had to refit. Uh, they were considering tearing it down, but it couldn't afford to do it because it was too expensive, one Canada Square. And that narrative a year ago seemed contrarian. It seems completely normal now. The idea that we would all go back into the office five days a week seems unnecessary and expensive. And as I mentioned before, pretty detrimental if you actually want to attract top talent who now understand they don't have to do that. Now, what percentage? I think the sort of two to three days at home, two to three days in quote unquote, the office or city center of some kind, meeting, collaboration, whatever you want, seems to be about right. And with that's around the percentage rates at which we're seeing large employers start to release their central London, and just as an example, real estate. So I can't see that number moving anything other than in one direction. Now, throughout the pandemic, it's been frankly boring listening to all sorts of kind of people wanting to make their big claim about, oh, it's going to be five days a week, you know, and there's sort of very, um, I won't name names, but it's very kind of old school, quite bullish declarations, particularly from one or two banks who now look a bit like they've completely misread the situation around, we must go back five days a week. It is important. Well, I know plenty of extremely successful businesses and individuals who've made fortunes quite happily, not personally, I should add, who've built their business entirely remotely. And that's, of course, the other side is people who go on and on about saying, well, there's 100% remote. 
Well, you know what? It's okay to have a bit of nuance. Maybe the answer is a mix. And you can believe whatever percentage you want are going to relocate, but you know, it's probably more than 5%. It's probably more than 10%. It may not be 50 or 60%, but you know, if you think about the sort of economic opportunity and the societal benefit, you know, opportunity that is created by that flow of people and where they move today and, and the amount of time they spend in places like London, then the thing that I am super excited about is this explosion of opportunity of uh, local economic activity, fundamentally talent in places near to where people live, because if we don't have to commute, why should we? I'm sold on that, Freddie. And now final question. We have a lot of younger listeners to this podcast, and I wonder if you have any advice to them, any younger listeners who perhaps are thinking about doing something entrepreneurial or even casting your mind back to your early days at Bain. What advice would you give to them or indeed yourself Mm. to equip themselves with the skills that you need to become a successful entrepreneur? It's hard to say this without sounding like it's sort of throwaway or kind of meaningless, but at least on a personal level, I can only talk from my own experience. The sooner you can just become comfortable with who you are and not measure yourself against external performance indicators, whatever they are. So for me, it was LinkedIn. You know, I had an amazing, amazing peer group at Bain, uh, the Super 16, we were called. And I have to confess, you know, for five, six years, how is this person doing? How's that person doing? Am I winning? You know, you get told, you know, aren't you so special coming to work at this top end firm? And actually, at some point, you know, everyone that's different. But for me, I turned 30, bought a flat and got married within about 12 months, all of each other. And I suddenly just stopped caring about what other people think. And I started, started caring about what you know, my horizon changed to sort of 30, 40 years. And I started to think about the story I wanted to tell my kids, etc. And actually, in whatever format it takes, don't feel like you have to take somebody else's, you don't need somebody else's permission. Seek their advice. The smartest thing, whether it's deliberate or not, I've, I've ever done is to try at least to become a better listener and to give back into networks and look for mentors and listen. It's not to say that any one mentor or person or even any of them have the right answer. There's a lot of wisdom out there that you can, and you know, this is one of the benefits of your podcast as well. And as I said, I've, I've learned a lot from listening to it. But if you can listen and develop your own view, but fundamentally one that you are comfortable with and is not contingent on somebody else's definition of success, to me at least, that's how you go about feeling like it's the right thing to do to go and set up a business. And even setting up a business, being a founder is a, is a sort of KPI that frankly is kind of meaningless. You know, you haven't done it till you build a business or I've got to be a founder. I mean, it's nonsense. This just happens to be how I believe I can sort of exhibit my passion for trying to kind of make some sort of positive improvement to the environment around me for the reasons that I mentioned. And don't feel like you have to be an entrepreneur or founder to do that, but fundamentally, definitely don't do it for anybody else's benefit. Do it for something that really, really matters to you because it is hard and you don't want to have to put yourself in a situation where you're making sacrifices that you're not ready to make. Freddie Ford, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Doug. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Wineverse podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Freddie Ford, founder of Patch. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like us and subscribe to us? Thank you. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.